This is Ken Lubin, the host and founder of the Executive Athletes Podcast, and welcome to this week's episode. I want to thank everyone that's been listening, and thank you for the comments and feedback. They're awesome and an incredible help in this journey to making this podcast better and better each episode. Once again, this is unscripted and unedited, as I believe it it is the best way to get to really know the guest. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen McGregor. Dr. McGregor is the founder of the Leadership Academy of Barcelona, with clients including Salesforce, Uber, and McKinsey. He has taught several hundred classes at leading business schools and has been a visiting researcher at Stanford and Carnegie Mellon. Overall, he has helped improve the health and well-being of more than 20,000 people worldwide through face-to-face delivery of the Sustaining Executive Performance Program, and I can't wait to talk about that, and another 250,000 people online. Dr. McGregor holds a PhD in design thinking and virtual teams and is the author of six books, notably Sustaining Executive Performance and Chief Wellbeing Officer, which is now a popular podcast. He's a former international level duathlete and national champion. He has trained with Olympic athletes, Tour de France cyclists, and Ironman champions, and can be found on a frequent basis running up and down the mountain overlooking the city of Barcelona. So, Dr. McGregor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. Pleasure to be here today. No, it's a, it's a blast to talk, and we were chatting a little bit earlier that you're in Spain, and you guys are on the positive upswing. So, hopefully, by the time this is posted, we're, we're all out of this thing. So, it's good to see you guys headed in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting time, right? And uh, as you know, just having been able to do exercise is just keeping us sane and getting us through this time. So tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about who Dr. McGregor is, how you got into the whole chief well-being officer and the sustainable, you know, executive performance program. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting story, you know, things are neat and tidy in hindsight, but I don't think at the time it was really planned that way, right? You know, I think there was two main um, kind of points that really set me on that path. One was when I was in the US, I was doing part of my PhD at Stanford and I was lucky enough to train with some of the the Olympic track team there. And and those guys were also, you know, studying at school. They were at the Sydney Olympics and and I was training really hard myself at the time. So as you mentioned, I was a duathlete, which is essentially triathlon for bad swimmers, just in case anyone anyone isn't sure. Um, And and I realized that I, I was thinking best when I was training. And, and that was the case when I looked upon my life, it was always the case that I'd get my best ideas. Um, I would be most productive when, when I was paying attention to that physical side of things. And I realized that the school system, the university system, college, whatever you want to call it, was the same. But when you got into the world of work, that completely broke down, right? You, you, you had people who were just being filled with, with knowledge. Either they did that themselves or, or their employer um, that was the tactics that they, they followed to develop them. And they just forget about that. They forgot about that side of themselves. So I started with the program with a very simple premise, which was reminding busy professionals that they have a body. So it, it began with that physical health side of things, right? And that was maybe about 15 years ago. And then even before then, my upbringing was, was also an important factor. So, you know, I grew up, I living in Spain, you can tell I've not got a Spanish accent. You know, I'm originally from Scotland. 
Uh, and, and I often say to my students and clients, I'm very aware of the irony of someone from Scotland teaching health. You know, in terms of a, in terms of a country, in terms of the data, uh, and often a lot of it is due to lifestyle habits, we are not the healthiest country in the world. And so that then, I guess, looking back, really opened my eyes to the choices that we all have in terms of the way that we lead our lives and how that impacts on our health. And so that was a motivation, I think, also to make an impact to, to people's lives in terms of their health. And it's such an important piece, right? And many of the listeners here understand that health is really the basis of who they are. And I think it's so important to be healthy and fit because without being healthy and fit, that's the engine that drives your family, that drives your workplace performance, that drives any hobby that you want. So talk to us a bit about you know, some, you, you know, some of the books that you've written about that because I know that's probably the exact theme of what we're talking about. Yeah, so as you say, there's a lot of evidence out there now and, and you know, being an academic or now that kind of, you know, part-time academic, let's say, I'm, I'm, I'm more kind of leadership development, coaching and, and things, but still involved in the university system. Um, evidence was important and, and also because it was a, it was a field that was, was, was characterized by a lot of skepticism. So you've got a lot of busy people in business who may have had something in terms of their own personal strategies that worked for them. But if you try to talk to them on an organizational level and say, look, let's think about the health of your teams and your wider organization, then they weren't really convinced about that. They always felt that anything to do with health and well-being was a compromise on performance. So evidence was very important. So a lot of the research that was coming out in even neuroscience and, and, and even you know the oxygen advantage of, of that you get to the brain uh, in terms of executive function thinking when you exercise, which is also compromised by sleep deprivation. So there was a lot of that evidence case that was building. Um, and then the corporate athlete methodology was also an important inspiration. So I remember when I, when I first started out, I actually emailed Tony Schwartz, um, who worked, of course, with Jim Lur and the High Performance Institute with a lot of high-performance sports people, particularly in tennis. So that was an inspiration. And I also remember just teaching uh, my first classes in the business school here in Barcelona, which has subsequently became um, kind of number one worldwide by the Financial Times and Executive Education, and looking for inspiration in different uh, areas. And then I found your own group in Executive Athletes, it was about 10 years ago. So I will remember, Ken, that was, um, it was also good to, to find that. So anyway, you know, the personal side of things, the evidence was there, some of the leading companies who were paying attention to it. And I tried to build a framework which was very practical and easy to follow because I felt that health um, was often compromised. The message of, of trying to get health to people was compromised by people having this very preaching tone. That this is what you must do, right? And, 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 and for example, with, with getting people to stop smoking, you know, shock tactics, like showing people a picture of a diseased lung. And everyone gasps in horror. And the first thing that they do is leave the building and, and light up a cigarette, right? And so I started to become very aware of what is important for trying to change people's behavior. So I took that very pragmatic approach. I think because, you know, because my upbringing, I'm Scottish, I'm an engineer by background. I wanted to make it very easy to follow. And I also tried to strike a tone which was kind of self-deprecating and trying to say to people, I'm not going to preach to you that I have the answer. You know, in terms of health, and my own bad habits, then, then I, can, I can go with anyone in terms of the bad side of that, right? And then I try to get people along with me in the journey by showing my own vulnerabilities and the frailties that we all have as human beings. 
So that's some of the main dimensions that I tried to bring, um, you know, about 10, 15 years ago when, when I started delivering the program and, 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 you know, I've had a measure of success since then. No, and, and I loved what you said, sort of the vulnerability piece of it, right? It's scare tactics only work until, like you said, until they have their next drink or their next cigarette. And it's, and I think society or business, especially up until recently, you didn't want to show your vulnerabilities, right? Because it was a sign of weakness that you, you know, this or that or, or whatever, you know, and I learned actually a number of years ago from someone who was teaching like, hey, teaching me sales. He's like, you have more power by saying that you're new and that you don't know than you ever have ever. Right. And I still use that. It's like, Hey, I'm new to this and you tell me a little bit about it. And it's unbelievable because people want to teach people, people want to tell you what's going on. But the fact that you're vulnerable, they're willing to help you and sort of guide you in the right direction. Yeah. It works every time, right? If you open up, people will open up to you. And that's when you can dig down and really find out what are the barriers to change for any particular person. And even the whole area of, um, which has been, uh, I guess, uh, uh, increased by the current crisis is the whole aspect of positive leadership and the importance of even, you know, really senior people, CEOs, showing vulnerability, showing compassion, showing empathy. And that is a big part of what we do also is that we put a lot of the messages of health and well-being and behavior change and we bring that into the whole aspect of positive leadership and how can you lead in that much more positive fashion? You know, even research shows things like humble leaders drive higher performing teams, the whole importance of psychological safety, right? Of course, which is, is growing incredibly the last few years that shows that that's how you drive high performance in teams as well. And I think this all fits with the messages that we're talking about of the importance of health and well-being for individuals, right? So you've gone in and you've worked with some of the, you know, the A players from the McKinsey to the Ubers, the BBC and Salesforce in, in the marketplace. When you're in there talking to them, what, what message are you giving them around health and well-being for performance? It, it depends where they are, right, on the spectrum. And I, and I think, as I said um, a few minutes ago, I've been used to dealing with a high degree of skepticism and, and these A players also have been, in, been within the kind of business school uh, classroom. So these people coming in executive MBAs are maybe even more skeptical because they're with their peers and they don't want to, sh you know, showing vulnerability and weakness is great, but often it's hard to break that down, right? So if, if you had, or, or when I encounter that real skepticism, then I focus on the performance case because it's absolutely clear and inarguable, right? So in terms of you show the, the research, you show some case studies, and you say to people, look, this is the science. If you take care of your health and well-being and you, and you just experiment in this way, you will get results. And you, and you look at that performance case. And I think even a lot of companies, as you mentioned, like that, over the years, their well-being program has been called performance or something like that, right? Um, that's what I would do at the start. If, if you then get them to actually take that message on board, I, I like to introduce those aspects uh, of, of well-being and health because that's what you want to get to, right? You don't want to just invest in people's health and well-being to squeeze a little bit more out of them. So I often like to use that. And even that's reflected in the titles of my book. So 2015, it was called Sustaining Executive Performance. I didn't even feel that I could use the words health and well-being. And in 2018, I felt it was ready. But 
it was ready, the market, the market was ready. So it was, it was chief wellbeing officer, but still putting those words of chief and officer on each side to kind of toughen it up a little bit because it's still very much viewed on a, on a, on a soft level. And then another thing that, that, that I show is, and I, and I use a lot of the background that I have in design thinking, is to show people you experiment and you don't need to make huge changes in your life, right? You know, you can make these small tweaks, you can experiment, and you will get the results. And this fits in a lot with the kind of business psyche of a lot of people, particularly in recent years in terms of agile methodologies, in terms of uh, the importance of learning from failure. And, and, and so you're aligning that message with a lot of the things that they're trying to do within the workplace anyway, right? So that, that's a couple of tactics um, that, that I would use. And then the fourth one would be that whole positive leadership piece in, in terms of tip, talking to people and saying, look, if you want a real thriving workplace that isn't just looking at how you're going to maximize uh, shareholder return for the next quarter, but you're really looking to be a thriving company in the longer term, this is what the new world of work needs right now, right? So depending on the time that you have with people, then those are different levers that you can pull. Maybe I only have an hour one time, another time you have six months, right? And then you just, you just pin it according to what you've got. Talk to about individual performance and how individual go performance goes up being, you know, focused on health and wellness. So I think it's been aware of the context. Um, and in the sustainable executive performance model, we have five dimensions. Uh, and I'm, what I say to people is, you know, work is work. You're going to be busy. Maybe you're going to pull an all-nighter to, to satisfy a client demand. You're going to go through a few days with four hours sleep, right? Um, but just beware of the norm. Beware of your normal habits. And even companies like Oracle that we've worked with who have a famous Q4 where people just come out of Q4 exhausted, then we say to them, right, you're nailing that down for the year. You're hitting the targets. Just make sure that when you come out of that period, you're not continuing to spin your wheels at such a high frequency, right? So context is the big thing on an individual level. And we say to people, depending on what you need that, it might be that you go for a run when you get off the plane. It might be that you meditate for 10 minutes and you get an early night. It might be that you have a nice meal. Uh, it might be that you have a couple of glasses of wine and you just relax. So what we say to people for that individual performance piece is we say, have that conversation with yourself, have that high degree of self-awareness and just be aware of your daily habits. Uh, and, and a lot of that I got, you know, from, from my background in sport and looking at high performance in sport, it's actually, you know, and, and this is what we get, Ken, I think, in business is that we look at the big picture, right? We look at the quarterly results, the financial year, the mission of the vision of the plan, the five-year growth plan or whatever it is, and that is important, absolutely. But we don't tend to think of the day, right? You know, the commute to work, um, how we greet our teams in the morning, uh, what our chronotype preferences and when we're planning a meeting compared to that, how we're sending emails late in the day or at night or on the weekends. So what we get people to think about for individual performance and of their teams and organizations is, that, is to really think on this small picture in these daily habits. No, and I love what you're saying. Even earlier, you don't have to go all of a sudden change the world today, right? And fortunately or unfortunately, that's what's being sold to us, that you can go on this diet and by Saturday, you're going to have six-pike abs without doing any work or, or doing anything else, right? And, and I think the workplace has very similar in what you're saying. It's quarter by quarter. And if you're only chasing the quarter, you're not really even looking at 
at the big picture. And I love when people say, oh, I've got a five, 10, 15 year plan. And no, you don't. You've got a plan that gets you the next quarter for your, uh, for your shareholders or for your dividend stuff, right? And that's really what people end up going down to. But I love what you said earlier. It's sort of, you know, incremental change, right? It could be 1%, it could be 2%. And by the end of the year, that's through the roof. And it's, and it's just little tweaks. Talk to us about sort of getting that mindset into organizations to people both who are athletes or to, you know, organizations, right? 1% better today is better than, you know, 0% yesterday or going backwards. Exactly. You know, and it's the, it's the compound interest, right? If you're 1% better every day, then at the end of the year, it's, it's a significant increase. It's the compound interest of, of behavior change. You know, making the case, again, coming back to a lot of changes in business recently in terms of agile, in terms of the importance of, you know, even design sprints, uh, of, of, of short-term planning. I think even it was Eisenhower, maybe it said, um, uh, plans are in this, planning is useless, but plans are, uh, or, no, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable, right? So you actually need to go through that, but the actual artifact itself isn't what you, isn't the value isn't in that end result. Um, you know, making the case, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, you do it two ways. You, you show cases of success, and I think always, people always want to see that, right? Say, okay, I, I like the logic of what you're telling me, and it makes sense, and different levels, my rational and emotional self, but show me this working, right? And I think you, you can show them cases and, and, and a very famous one that I have in, in, in the Sustained Executive Performance book, which has been very well documented over the years, was, was uh, track cycling and the Great Britain and Northern Ireland team at the Olympics and the, the cumulative effect of marginal gains that they implemented, um, which, is, which was one strategy of many that, that gave them a lot of success, right? It was a lot of changes. It wasn't just that, but that, that captured the imagination of people. Um, and, and when I was cycling in Girona with a lot of the um, US postal team guys were there and, and, and the, the president of British Cycling actually came and it, I think it was 2007 and he said, look, our aim is to win the Tour de France, a British rider to win the Tour de France within five years. And I laughed at him, right? It was like in 100 years of the Tour de France that had never been close, right? It was Robert Miller, the, the Scottish rider in 1984 was the closest, King of the Mountains in, in fourth place overall. But then you fast forward 10 years and you're getting three or four British riders winning that in, 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 in the period of five years, right? And, and it just shows you the transformation that can come. And a lot of that was with the mindset that those guys had. And looking at this change and recognizing that you put these things together and it makes a difference. And what I say to people is, is, you know, that's just one example. And I try and give them more from sport and business. But just say to them, look, find your own marginal game. You're in a world today... It's a democratized world in terms of the information that we can find, the, the ways that we can develop ourselves. You know, what's going to make the difference between you and someone else? It often does come down to those tiny changes, but implemented in a consistent manner. So each day you have that mindset of just trying to get better, right? And, and, and I don't think it's a, it necessarily has to be this overly um, uh, masculine, aggressive type approach. It's just... How can you actually try and get better from a, from a position of humility even? I think that also helps. No, and that's it. And it could be just one thing, right? You ate a better breakfast. All of a sudden, you know, just capitalize on that, that, oh, I might tell you to eat a better lunch or, or whatever, or you did something outside of your comfort zone. And that's right now you and I are chatting. It's during the COVID thing. And, but I think it's going to change things as well. And a lot of people that I'm talking to, it's, 
that are looking for advice or, or how to move forward. And I'm saying you're already outside your comfort zone. Just stay outside your comfort zone and try new things because who cares if you fail? No one's going to see it anyways. And no one's really going to care because they're not worried about what you're doing or not. And then, but what if it works? Right. I think that's the other thing is if it works, you're going to be like, Oh my God, that works. I'm better than I was yesterday. And then you can capitalize on that. Yeah, I mean, and, and it is an opportunity space, absolutely. A lot of the work that we are doing right now is on behavior change and recognizing that in terms of habits, you know, we may be taking on a lot of really crappy habits right now. <laughs> you know, we're working from home. We have the office maybe two feet away from the kitchen. Uh, uh, so there could be eating habits that are getting worse. We could have no structure or, or whatever it may be in different parts of our life. But there's also that opportunity for instilling new things. Is this real sandbox that we all have right now? Because no one is expecting you to be running at 100% efficiency. And if you look at the, the theory of operations and innovation, you know, when you innovate, you're breaking things apart, right? So in many ways, the system of, of efficiency that business and life expects of us all COVID has just dismantled that. So this is an, a time for us all to kind of reset, ask questions, try new things. And as you say, if it doesn't work, no worries. So where do you see, and chatting about that and sort of going through the reset, where do you see things going, right? I'm sure you're chatting with executives all over the place. What are they saying? Where does, you know, what's their, how has their vision changed? I've, I've talked to some that are, I'm changing every day or some I'm like, hey, I need a 10-year plan, right? So yeah. What, what are you saying? You know, at the start of it all, and especially where I am in Europe, you know, early March was the first kind of hit. Um, and, and even in terms of our own business, all of the programs that we had, which were face-to-face -face programs, even really deep into the year, were canceled at a stroke. And I was thinking, okay, don't freak out. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I and think then, everyone in the service business <laughs> has, has that feeling. Absolutely. But, I'm right there with you. So. <laughs> but the nice thing after that was that people started to get in touch and, and they would say to me, you know, Stephen, this well-being thing that I, I wasn't quite listening to you when you're trying to make the case last year or two years ago. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying now, right? And, and, and so we got a lot of requests after that first couple of weeks that were saying to us, people are really worried. Their mental health is, is, is an issue. Their physical health is an issue. And there's a lot of other issues in terms of dealing with uncertainty and resilience and things like that, right? So one impact has been a lot of senior people are starting to legitimize this area, whereas previously it wasn't really on their radar. Now, whether that actually results in material change is another thing, right? Because I think now with de-escalation in many countries and, and, and many countries having, you know, hit the top of that curve, um, it's still shaking out in terms of what are we going to see? You know, people are going back to the office, maybe slowly but surely. There's a lot of social aspects that we're seeing in terms of signage and keeping social distance and all these different things. So who knows, right? I just hope that people because senior people are starting to legitimize it, you will see that material change. One of the big changes I absolutely think will be in terms of more of that merging between working life and non-working life. And a lot of that because we were working from home for three months and a lot of organizations and a lot of people actually realized this does work to a degree. Do you want to be 100% at home when you're trying to broker a deal or do some important work? You've got kids there and dogs there? No, probably not, right? But at least 
part of every week. You probably could do a lot of things in, in at home, right? And so I think some things of that will be less time, less long excessive hours in the office. There'll be more of that flux between both places. And, and I do think there'll be less core working days. You know, we all know that when, when you have a career where you're thinking you're a knowledge worker, let's say, it's not as if you were ever working nine to five anyway, right? I mean, you have technology, you're potentially working 24-7, but I just think the core working day in terms of your um, communication with others, the standard may shift a little bit down. I mean, you might get something like four-day weeks, six-hour days that may become more of a norm, and then over and above that, you have more flexibility and more flux. It's going to be very difficult to manage, but I just think there'll be more shakeout, more flexibility, and more of that merging between working life and non-working life. Well, and I think what you're talking about earlier too is sort of, you know, how well you work, right? A lot of people work well. My favorite thing is I like to get up at five or five thirty and go hard. And people, what's your morning routine? I'm like, well, I get up and I start working. I don't, you know, and that's the way I learned how to study. I didn't like studying at night. So I always got up at, I could roll out of bed and start studying. So I do the same thing with work. And then you know, I'll work out midday or, or whatever, because it works for my schedule. I think what you're going to start seeing too, is the ability that people don't have to be on the phone at normal hours or doing global business. They're going to work when work's efficient for them. It could be late at night. It could be from 10 to two in the morning. They love it. They're night owls, or they go hard in the afternoon or the early morning. Like I was saying, because it's, it works well for you, right? It's sort of like being an athlete. It's, you know, Shaquille O'Neal is never going to be a jockey and a jockey is never going to be a basketball player because that's, you know, their genetics. And I think it's the same way with work, with studying, with, with learning, you, you got to optimize what's best for you. And nine to five isn't necessarily what's best for most people. Exactly. I mean, if you think about what we've done in business in the, in the past 10 or 20 years, it's increased customization for for clients, right? You're actually trying to really satisfy their needs. And even my own background in design, you're trying to figure out, you know, deep lying needs and be very particular how you satisfy those needs. But with workers, with employees, there's a one size fits all kind of strategy, right? And that could have been the building itself in terms of the office design. Like, okay, you've got a table, you've got a desk and chair and a computer and, that, and that's you. And then you had the structure of the working day of nine to five or whatever it is. And it was a one size fits all. So I, I think I completely agree with what you're saying. We're going to see that mass customization of the workforce. And it's for those reasons that a lot of the stuff that we do with, with, with our customers is we do uh, circadian rhythm science, we do uh, chronotype analysis, and, and we actually look to un uncover the, the specific patterns of each person in terms of how, they, how best they work. And I think you're going to see more of that in, in the workplace. Then you're going to get back to theories that we got in the 60s in human resources, right? I think it was even Professor McGregor, funnily enough, it was McGregor's theory <laughs> X Y, right? And it was actually all workers are conscientious and they'll do the best that they can do with the company and they're highly, you know, driven all these things. And, and theory Y, I mean, I'm completely wrong here. I'm not an HR expert. was about all, lazy, all workers are lazy and they're not interested and you need to really keep an eye on them and things like that, right? So how universal that approach will be that if you give certain employees that rope, that empowerment, will they abuse it is, is the other question that's going to shake out, right? Um, but the customization piece, at least for, you know, knowledge workers, uh, I, I absolutely believe that's going to happen.
No, definitely. And uh, and you're super fit as well, right? So let's talk about that. Let's talk about training and staying fit while being a professional. How do you handle that? And how do you see other professionals handling it? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm privileged. I also got a disadvantage in terms of having my own business is that I have the freedom to decide when I train, but also sometimes when I have too much space, it's not good for me. Right. You know, and, and we all need some structure or some routine and because of the nature of, of my work, you know, I could be really hard with a client for a couple of weeks and then a week or two, it's just time for reading and writing and, and sometimes it's hard to manage that in terms of having a regular beat to my training. Um, so anyway, but but in terms of running, I've been a runner. I've been a runner uh, most of my life, um, and I, I you know, I, I, and then as you say, with the duathlon piece, I combined that with cycling. I, I used to train with some of the two of the France guys when I, I lived in Girona, which is north of um, and I trained with some really top athletes over the years. Um, you know, the physical thing is important for me, uh, but it, and just that feeling of, of being fit. Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't find it hard, right? I mean, and I'm 43 now, so I'm a real master's athlete. I still try and compete when I can. Um, but then even just finding it more difficult with weight in the last few years. So I've had this experiment with different things, paid more uh, attention to nutrition. It's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine as we collaborate in different things. He's an ex-partner at McKinsey, and he was a world champion in martial arts. And we were talking about how much more attention we need to pay to nutrition nowadays. Whereas when you were a young kid and you were training and competing, you just took any crappy carb that was there and that was enough, right? Mm-hmm. But as you get older, the nutrition piece is so much more important. So I'm paying much more attention to anti-inflammation in my diet. Uh, I'm experimenting a lot with intermittent fasting and, and things like that, right? Um, but getting back to the running piece, and I was thinking about this this morning because I went a really nice run and I knew that we had this talk coming up. Um, and what it gives me is just that mental space that, I that I need and I think everyone can benefit from through exercise so I went a run through you know I had a couple ugly miles through the city but then I landed at the coast and I overlooked the port of Barcelona and it was a fantastic run it was hard I went past the old Olympic Stadium for the 1992 Olympics uh, and and I felt that residual benefit all day the last couple of days I'd been finding my finding myself with just you know as we all do just overthinking things right being a little bit more insular and, and too myopic. And I think that's what exercise gives you, right? It gets you out of yourself and it reconnects you with some of the basic things, nature, your heartbeat, you know, and, and it just, it simplifies matters. And I think that's maybe more, most of what I value uh, these days and, and, and not necessarily winning races and competing internationally and all these things. It's the same thing. Yeah, I'm 47 and it's like, hey, that's my time. It's... excuse me you're not checking your phone you're not doing any of that stuff and it's the only time it's a time for you to think it's a time for you to reflect and it's amazing what ideas come to you on a long run or a long bike ride or or anything like that because it's um the only time you can sort of sometimes you start you know anxious and i gotta do this i gotta do this i gotta do this and then by the time you come back it you, you feel amazing because you sort of swept that from your mind and you actually have new ideas coming in as long as you don't get too tired that's sometimes the danger now that i'm getting older i overcook it because i still think (laughs) i'm I'm a young 20 20 something 
and I come back and I'm knackered. I just want to go to bed for the rest of the day. <laughs> I did that on Saturday. I went for like a three and a half hour bike ride that the road ended. I had to go through mud and everything else to get to where I wanted to go because I wasn't turning around. And yeah, I came home. I'm like, you know what? I'm sitting on the couch. And that's exhausting. <laughs> Whereas I remember I used to be able to go do that same ride and then go stand on my feet all day and work all day. I'm like, oh my God, what, you know, what's happened to me? But it's yeah. life. It's what happens. Sure. But hey, we're coming up here on over a half an hour and, it, and it's been great. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about you and your work and everything? And, you know, I'll share some you know, information to everyone as well, but love to hear it from you. Sure. I mean, you know, the website of the, of the Leadership Academy of Barcelona, um, maybe we put that with episode, uh, people can get, get in touch via, via, via the website and, and I'm pretty active on social media, right? So, uh, if anyone you know tried hard enough, or it's not that hard to find me on on all the different channels just by typing in my name, and and, and I'll pop up somewhere. Perfect. This has been great. It was awesome. A great discussion. I'm sure we could probably refer some business back and forth to each other as well. But I love talking about this stuff. So thank you, and thank you for being part of this today. Real pleasure, Ken. Great talking to you. And if anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to me at kenintheexecutiveathletes.com. Go out there, subscribe to the podcast, but make sure you go hard, and but don't go too hard like Stephen and I are saying and uh, be tired for the rest of the day. But enjoy it and have a great week. Thanks for listening.